Oftentimes in the past, dear listener, Jed and I have derided historical romances as much as we love them Mm -hmm. for their lack of real world believability, especially the Regency and Victorian romances. I mean, come on. There were not 400 dukes running around London and there were no paupers becoming princesses. Oh. Except during the Gilded Age, American girls became the so-called dollar princesses marrying into European aristocracy. Dollar princesses sound cheap, though. They were not cheap. (laughs) They were not cheap by any means. So, dearest listeners, dust off your passports and fire up your time machines. We're about to embark on a spellbinding journey to an era of audacious ambition, enchanting courtships, and beguiling women who took their futures into their own hands. Let's talk about the husband hunters. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! I'd watch that Bravo show. There is a couple different shows you can watch. <laughs> hey, Jackie. Yes? If love is grand, what is divorce? Not grand. A hundred grand or more. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Which I'm guessing applies since I'm sure they were not going to go to the trouble of divorcing after getting all this money. Well. <laughs> oh. We're going to talk about it. Oh, boy. So, well, I feel like it's been a while since we've been here. I don't know why, just the two of us sitting down. It feels like it's been forever. Well, we just had true crime. Oh, that's true. Yeah, do we ever do that? No, because it still feels like it's been forever, <laughs> and I don't know why. I mean, it's just time, I guess. It time is. passing. And holidays are coming up, mm-hmm. so it's just like, I mean, Yeah. Yeah, and also we're both like, hang on, we have these weeks off here and these weeks off here, so yeah. we have to arrange this and this and this mm-hmm. and this. So on that note, we do have to say our December episodes are going to be flip-flopped. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally, of course, we come out the first and the third week are full length um, because of our schedules and because of a secret project that we have coming up. Um, the first episode of the month is going to be a mini-sode filed by a full length and then mini-sode and then full length. And the very last episode is going to be a special gift to you <gasps> for the year. Yeah, you better be grateful. So... Huge shout out to Noble for sponsoring yeah. Raging Romantics. We are eternally grateful for you guys. Honestly, even to you listeners, we're eternally thankful to you. I feel like we've been having a very good month over the past couple of months, and we've had so many new listeners mm-hmm. writing in. Shout out to Sylvia, who emailed in saying she loved the podcast. We love you too, Sylvia. Yeah, I want a shirt now. <sighs> yeah. Give me a shirt. Uh, Kara, Shailene, if you are listening, <laughs> we would like some merch, please. And so would the people on the other end of the microphone. But thank you, Noble. Thank you, listeners. We are grateful for you. And it's the season of gratefulness. After know. all. Yeah, I can't believe we're still here after a gazillion years. <laughs> I know. Jen, do you have anything to catch the listeners up on? Nope. Okay, cool. Are you ready to jump right into this? Yeah, no, I really want to hear about Husband Hunters. Okay, excellent. And I think you're going to like it because it's there's like housewives drama. <gasps> I love housewives. And this is obviously a Jackie episode. It's obviously history, so it's going to be a long one. Yeah, it's 18 pages. Buckle up. There's there's a lot of history to it. But thankfully, there's not that many names. There's recognizable names and some really fun facts that even I didn't know. Oh, good. So, yeah. I'm excited. Let's dive in. Well, this episode is going to start in an interesting place, somewhere I never thought I would be after I graduated high school. Economics. 
unfortunately. Because Gilded Age America was a study of economic growth and advantage and is held pretty much in direct opposition to the decline of the British economy during the same era. Jen, off the top of your head, what do you know of the Gilded Age and what are your impressions of it? Well, it's kind of sarcastic, right? Because it's gilded because of like the 1% and they Mm -hmm. had all the happiness and Mm -hmm. the shininess and Mm -hmm. it's covering up a really gross underbelly for everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. That's... I I didn't go get a history degree, but I liked history. Well, you are spot on pretty much, Jen. (laughs) Of course. The Gilded Age rose out of the Civil War. Post-1865, during Reconstruction and westward expansion, America was growing larger than it ever had before, and industry was booming as necessity demanded and as natural resources flooded the market. For roughly 40 years until about 1901-1913, somewhere before World War I, American capitalism hit the ground with two feet running, kickstarting industries like railroads, mining, cattle, banking, architecture, city planning, oil, timber, sugar, liquor, meatpacking, steel, tobacco, textiles, and so many more. And innovation ran right alongside the beast of capitalism. Art, literature, and technology flourished, bringing us inventions like the discovery of electricity and the use of the light bulb, the telephone, the phonograph, the automobile, the airplane, even the camera. It's kind of fun to look back on because, you know, we always look at mm. the, as, as true millennials, we always look at the period between like the 1990s and the 2000s as being like this huge boom of yeah. technology and saying, oh, there's never been a time period like this. Mm-hmm. The Gilded Age was that time period. Oh, so this was really similar. We literally got electricity, the photograph, and the telephone mm-hmm. all within the same period of time. That must have blown some people's minds. Right? It really did. Why do you think the prohibitionists became so strong in the <laughs> 1900s? <laughs> Immigration during this time also led to a booming population. Other parts of the world were struggling, particularly in Europe and the UK when it came to the working class. The Great Famine in Ireland lasted from 1845 to 1852, and the Irish Land War saw a mass eviction of evictions of farmers and tenants across the country. Religious persecution in Eastern Europe saw Jewish people and other religions fleeing for religious sanctuary, and the desire for economic stability caused still more people to flee their place of birth. And what did America promise at this time? Ding, ding, you guessed it. Economic prosperity through the American bootstrap dream, land, religious freedom, and the opportunity to completely reinvent who you were. Indeed, between 1880 and 1914, more than 27 million immigrants landed on America's shores. That's pretty funny when I just recently learned the whole bootstrap thing is not the full quote. Yeah. Do you know the full quote? I don't remember it. I read it. It's like, I think the whole thing was something like, yeah, you got to pull them up by the bootstraps that you don't have. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Things that don't exist. That's what you're going to use. I'm a bad librarian. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless tempest toss to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. If that does not sound familiar, it should. You might want to take U.S. history again. (laughs) That is The New Colossus, penned in 1883 by Emma Lazarus, and it is the poem inscribed onto the Statue of Liberty in Manhattan's Harbor, one of the most utilized ports of 19th century immigration in the country, along with Boston, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Baltimore, and San Francisco. Unfortunately, as Jen pointed out a few minutes ago, a large number of these immigrants did not have the golden future they envisioned. 
overcrowding in cities led to the rise of disastrously dangerous tenement housing, and the spread of disease was relentless. Diphtheria, typhoid, and later, the Spanish influenza would wreak havoc on the poorer working class populations in these various cities. Jen, do you want a fun fact about the Spanish influenza? I always want a fun do fact. Do you know why it's called the Spanish influenza? Because it wasn't reported in Spain because they were like having their civil war. So it was totally opposite. Oh, it was only reported in Spain. Yes. It was, right. It was sorry World about that. War I. Yeah, and that's Spain what they were was the only on. country not participating. Thank you. And so their news okay. was not embargoed. Okay. So I was not that good in history class. Yeah. It just okay. took a minute. You just had to flip flop it. Yeah. So yeah. So that's I knew it was something Spanish like influenza. that. It did not originate in Spain. Mm-hmm. It actually originated in the U.S. New York, <laughs> I believe. <Yikes. laughs> Anyways. Many considered all of this to be worth it at the time. There was work to be had, and honestly, in some ways, it was better than the persecution and starvation they had faced back in their home countries. Factories of all sorts were on the rise and were looking for workers of all ages, races, and ethnicities. Railroads promised good money for hardworking men, and the upper classes would always need servants, oftentimes being the single women and mothers. Now, what's interesting to look at is the direct comparison between these lower classes who made up the majority of the country's population as compared to the growing elite who are prospering off their work. In 1890, for example, 11 million of the nation's 12 million families earned on average less than $1,200 per year. In today's money, that's approximately 40000 for combined family salary. So, which, so that's single or like both the mom and the dad are working? That's both mom and dad are working. And the kids? Probably. Probably, yeah, because yeah. there's child labor laws. Yeah. They're like not no, a They thing don't yet. exist yet. Yeah, they're not a thing. <laughs> they exist because of this time <laughs> yes. period. Okay. Um, so, wow. So, like, four people possibly, like, 40,000, which, yeah, honestly, that's pretty on average for what we have yeah, today, today. As sucky as that is, which sucks. But of this group, the average annual income was only $380. That's oh. only $12,800 today. Jeez. So, while the mean... Like, if we look at economics, while the mean average income for a family of, say, four, mm-hmm. mom, dad, even kids working, was $1,200 a year, mm-hmm. the average was only that $380. Oh, my God. Yeah. If you look at pictures, this is when muckraking as a journalism yeah. venture was <laughs> invented. If you look at the pictures that came out of this time period, some of them I have never seen before, and it was it was honestly breathtaking and mm-hmm. not in a good way. Yeah. It was maddening to see. So on one side of the aisle, making up like seven-eighths of the country's population, we have families and individuals living with basically nothing, yet still working and contributing to the growing wealth of a select few on the other side, the growing upper class of American society. And every time I say society from now on, I want you to imagine it with a, a capital S. Oh, okay? okay, okay. Society. This may seem like an odd note to start this podcast on, as it obviously is nowhere near the romantic, glittering image of Gilded Age representations, including romance novels that we would have you believe. Mm -hmm. And the rest of this podcast is going to be about the other 1% of the population. But we have to remember, like Jen said, that while we're talking about the Dianas of the Gilded Age, this class war is waging itself in the background because the Gilded Age is what leads us into the period of reform and legal actions on behalf of all classes in America. Between the Industrial Revolution, immigration, growing capital wealth, and the boom of innovation, American citizens were experiencing a growth country unlike anything America had ever seen before. This is when we see the rise of Jen's favorite people ever, the capitalists. Oh, ew. And the world's first billionaire. (laughs) Men like John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and Henry Ford became icons of this era, amassing wealth that would far surpass any industrialist to this day. Yes, at a rate even more so than Mm. that of men like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. 
These men were the quote-unquote robber barons. They were the ones who, while not born in the same situation as the majority of the American workforce, became businessmen and made their massive fortunes through their own innovation and work. So when you say that, they didn't necessarily start like lower class and maybe middle class? Okay. So a really good example and somebody that I discovered in this was the Jerome family. So Mm -hmm. Jenny Jerome was Winston Churchill's mother. Oh, okay. And she was actually one of the women that we're going to be talking, not like specifically about, but Mm -hmm. she was a husband hunter. Oh. Her father was born in my hometown in Pompey, New York. Wow. And he was a farmer. Like his dad was Mm -hmm. a farmer. And he moved when he was like 18, 15, 18, somewhere in there to Brooklyn and became a financier and made his own wealth. Mm -hmm. And he passed his wealth on to his daughter who then married into the Churchill family. So like we're talking like maybe one generation removed. Yeah. Okay. The kind of the seed money that started this. Like in some cases they were like upper middle class. They mm-hmm. were they weren't abject poverty. Was there anybody who was like slums, no shoes, b- b- like that could is that like a myth? There is a myth running around, but there's no specific names that I could okay. find. The only one I've ever heard about is Carnegie, because he likes to tell that story about how yeah. he would like stand outside the gates of this fancy house and want to be let in. And yeah. But I wasn't sure if he was actually poor or if that was like part of the myth of him. He had a room. He had room and he had food. Okay. Let's put it that way. Okay. So he wasn't like to- but like that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't like one of nothing. the he wasn't one of the guys sleeping on the corner under the newspapers with okay. no shoes. So he had a little bit. Yeah. Like a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had a start. Okay. But yes, these were these were the people who were actually living the American dream. Mm-hmm. These were the bootstrappers. Okay. This is who everybody wants to be. Exactly. Exactly. Unlike the ruling classes of society, mm-hmm. these men were not necessarily born into generational wealth, as I was just saying. They used their business acumen and industry to insert themselves and their families into all manners of American mm-hmm. society, including, most importantly, the American aristocracy. This I can't wait to hear about because obviously we do not have kings or queens here. Exactly. It's a whole deal. But, but we, we kind of have do. an artificial aristocracy. Yeah. I mean, look at Queen Beyonce. <laughs> yes, exactly. We have Taylor Swift. <laughs> we don't need the Queen of England. <laughs> it's important to pay attention to the shift in class sentiments among the upper echelons during this time. Throughout the history of America, the rich and upper class had been clearly defined, not by titles like in England with lords and ladies, but by their generational wealth and inheritances. These were wasps before there was an official title, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Like that title didn't exist, I think, until mm-hmm. like 1940s or something like that. Instead, they were the Knickerbockers, oh. <laughs> families mostly of Dutch and English descent in New England and the East Coast cities who made their way to the nation when it was still a colony. These families had made a name for themselves through industries like banking, shipping, lumber, fur trade, mining, and railways, and held onto their positions throughout the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries. Think families like the Astors, who were of German and English descent. Their German ancestors were butchers who moved to England and became flute makers. Mm -hmm. They then emigrated to Baltimore in 1783, where they continued making flutes and then moved into fur, piano, and real estate businesses. A second branch of the family headed by German dairyman John Jacob Astor then moved to New York around 1786 and started his own fur trade. And from there, that was all she wrote. By the end of the Civil War, the Astors were the family of society. And when Caroline Schirmerhorn, (laughs) very, very Eastern European, married into the family. And in 1853, she became the unofficial queen of New York. So are they modeling anything in Europe or this is just their own, like, I've got all this money I want to show off? They are modeling the salons. Mm -hmm. So this was also like, it wasn't after the Enlightenment. It's about 100 years after the Enlightenment. But if you think of what Enlightenment salons were like, if you think of this time of flourishing, like, little societies amongst bigger societies, Mm -hmm. like social circles, that's what they were modeling in New York. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was necessarily 
I don't want to say that. They were purposefully modeling themselves after European rich, Mm -hmm. but they did not model the society of the European rich. They wanted that opulence and that Mm -hmm. splendor, and we'll get to that in a second, but they weren't of the class sentiments Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's America. We don't have class sentiments. Anybody could do this. Okay. So, yeah. However, with the booming industrialization of the American economy, all these new families start to make their way onto the society pages. Families that had never been invited into society before now suddenly had disposable income to insert themselves into the parties and the culture of Knickerbocker society. And the Knickerbockers did not like it. Mm. Do you remember there's the scene in Titanic when they're boarding the ship? Jen, have you seen the Titanic? Well, so there's the scene in the Titanic where they're boarding the ship Mm -hmm. and Rose is, who's the heroine, her family is like really rich, old money. They're boarding the ship and you see this American woman come on and she's got like these little yappy dogs and like a big fluffy hat and like really ostentatious clothes and they're like, oh, we can't be seen with her. And then they have to get on the ship together. So Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, they have to be seen. That's the kind of sentiment we're talking Mm -hmm. about. The term nouveau riche was used to differentiate between old money and new money. And to snub them at society parties. Mm. Most importantly, to snub the daughters of these industrial titans and refuse them marriage into their old money families. They had money too. So it wasn't like they were shooting themselves in the foot, right? No. By doing this. No. By being like, oh, your money's too new. I don't want like. No, like they were okay. still industry giants themselves. themselves. I mean, like the Astors are the Waldorf Astors yeah. who made the big hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just like they were kind of poo-pooing on on these new rich people mm-hmm. they were like you do not have the same money we gotcha. do your money is too shiny I our just, money is good i guess i was just making sure that they weren't like stroking their own ego as opposed to stroking their bank account by marrying these people you know they were just stroking their ego okay yeah amongst other things <laughs> um <laughs> so what do the nouveau riche do they start sending their daughters across the atlantic exchanging dowries for European titles. Mm. If the American society didn't want them, fine. They would marry into older society people. Mm. Who needed the money. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. And it was only the women, really? They didn't send their sons? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. We'll talk about that in a second, too. I guess they don't want to really send the sons. Like, the sons have to stay and run the business. Exactly. I'm guessing. And it's all about the flow of money. Yeah. Right? So, dowry follows the wife into right. the husband's family. So, if you have an English... Mm-hmm heiress with her dowry which the dowries weren't much by then and we'll talk about that in a little while um coming over to america she was taking the money to america yeah that's a good point i with the titles is this like an ego thing or is it also like they go it's an ego thing it's not like there's no advantage of this of like hey i have a son-in-law who's a duke look at me i'm so cool like they don't get like a business step up it really is just like i belong here there is trade Okay. Like, there is obviously going to be trade mm-hmm. established with this. But for the most part, it was a lot of – we'll talk about this in a little – I keep saying that, but we will. Okay. Of It's the moms. It's mm-hmm. the mothers being like, oh, my oh. daughter is marrying the man who is going to be the viceroy of India. Guess, what is your <laughs> daughter doing? I guess I'm just trying to understand all the angles because so much of this is really just their egos. It is. That it really is, is right? It's okay. all artificial. Gotcha. It They're, like, making it is. up as they go. Yes. Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Novelist Edith Wharton describes this in her classic work, The Buccaneers. Contrary to the title, this is not about pirates, sadly, but it is about two girls from New York who, along with their governess, head to the UK and launch themselves into British society, flirting with dukes and marquesses and all aspects of British life. Wharton herself was a member of New York's old guard. She was a knickerbocker and considered these nouveau riche 
quote, a group of bourgeois colonials who made their money too quickly. That is the common sentiment. They're like, <laughs> too quickly. exactly. It's, <laughs> you yeah. should have waited longer to be rich. It wasn't exactly. ripe yet. They didn't like collect it longly over time. They just made it overnight. Clearly you don't appreciate it enough. So I should just take some of it back. Because you're not ready yet. I mean, it's a lot of what happened with That's the tech so boom, oh, right? When everybody was making their money in tech and all of New York, like, I families like, were like, oh, they made money in tech. It's not real money. It's all crypto. God. It's still money. Money is money. Yeah. Buccaneers was fashioned to be satirical, perhaps meant to poke fun at the antics of these heroines when exposed to the world of nobility, the likes of which the democratic America would mm. never have. The title indicates that while buccaneer can most notoriously be used for 17th century pirates, it also refers to, quote, an unscrupulous adventurer, especially in politics Wait. or business. Wait, is she calling the girls pirates who are going over to, like, what, steal, like, the English dukes? Mm-hmm. Oh, Remember, she thought they were bourgeois colonials. Oh Listen, I know language changes, but I just can't take these people seriously who call themselves <laughs> knickerbockers. And then they're, like, screaming about, oh, you made money too quickly. Do you want another fun fact? Yes. So it came from a guy's name. He, he was Dutch, and his name in Dutch sounded like Nikobak. Oh my god! And so they called them the Knickerbockers. <laughs> this is so stupid. It was so fascinating. Oh, and he was also he founded Albany. Knickerbocker founded Albany. Albany. Wow. Yeah. Well, at least they picked Albany, not Knickerbocker. Yeah, exactly. That could be the capital of New York. Is Knickerbocker? He also founded Red Hook. So oh, you know, Red Hook would have been a cool name too. Anything <laughs> Red other Hook. than Knickerbocker. <laughs> Oh, my God. Anyways, clearly, Wharton was deriding these girls who were selling themselves into marriage. And in her eyes, they were making fools of themselves. Well, yeah. However, the novel was not finished during her lifetime. It was published posthumously. Mm -hmm. It does also show classic Wharton themes of social change and female relationships. And so while the satire does obviously come across, yes, Mm -hmm. it also becomes a pivotal example of femininity in the way society was changing during this time period. Mm -hmm. Which brings us beautifully to the crux of today's episode and the crossover into Romancelandia, the husband hunters of the Gilded Age. Who exactly were these girls and women crossing an ocean with trunks of silk and bars of gold? Why were they leaving their families behind for crumbling estates with, excuse my French, inbred husbands? <laughs> First off, <laughs> honestly, no, I've been picturing like handsome men, but you're totally right. Yeah. They like kept marrying their cousins. What kind of romance novel is this? And then you look at pictures of these girls and they were Beautiful, gorgeous. Right? And then they get stuck with this guy. I tell my mother to go, to go to hell. Yeah. Drag some about something else. Yeah. They should have just stolen the titles and killed them. I hope a bunch of. I hope eventually this is going to end up with being like, yes, no, I killed my ugly husband and I, I get to be a princess and I'm done. That's a happy ending. This is not a real romance. It's not a real romance. I'm sorry. So, why why were they doing this, right? Why were they leaving America? Where? Oh my God. Listen, we had some pretty attractive men back then. And, like, it's New York City. You're in the middle of all this change. It must have been so exciting to live here. Like, yes, I joked about people, like, freaking out about all these inventions. But it must have been so cool to be, like, in the middle of it all. And, again, from watching Bravo, I know the New York housewives have the most fun 
like in the, in New York City, none of the other housewives like seem to to have it as good. And instead, they're going over to England where it's cold. There's no <sighs> central heating. Well, they England. still didn't really believe in like the whole indoor plumbing Oof. flushable situation. Jeez. There were a lot of chamber pots still, is all I'm saying. So, um, well, first off, I highly recommend the book The Husband Hunters by Anne DeCourcy. She does an ex- excellent job of giving even more background than I just gave, and she goes into lives of some of the most well-known heiresses of the Gilded Age. I almost feel bad for them, and I shouldn't because they're rich, but I'm like, God, I would run back on that ship. Keep keep that sentiment because okay. it, you're justified in that oh, sentiment. Oh, good. Okay, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. For our discussion today, it all comes back to exactly what Wharton described. The upper crust, the Knickerbockers, refused to let the new money into their ranks at first. So, headed by a guiding female hand, these girls signed their names on the dotted line, took their American dollars straight across the Atlantic, and exchanged currency for social prestige. When you say dotted line, is that just like a fancy thing you're putting yeah, in? Yeah, okay. I'm just like Oh, metaphor. no, I thought like I was saying, like you were saying they had already signed like a marriage contract no they did they also signed contracts wait wait so they got married to somebody they hadn't even yeah. seen they're not even like, like maybe they met them once or twice at most like, again i'm thinking at least the fun part is you get to go to europe and go to parties and sometimes like dress up but like you're saying they're already trapped yeah so like the person we're about to talk about she was trapped she was f- fully entrapped yeah yeah <sighs> i don't like this it's important here to remember that these were the daughters of industrial titans. Girls like Mary Leiter and Jenny Jerome, whose maiden names may not seem all that familiar, after marriage became vicerines and mothers of prime ministers, with marriages into the Curthon and Churchill families, respectively. Even Consuelo Vanderbilt, who is the subject of our story today, daughter of the infamous Vanderbilt fortune, would marry across the pond twice, eventually becoming the Duchess of Marlborough and a member of the Churchill dynasty, if unhappily. Ugh. The fathers of these buccaneers, yeah. Oh, I keep thinking of buccaneers as like a masculine noun, mm-hmm. so I'm like, wait, buccaneers, and then I'm remembering, no, it's the women. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the fathers of these buccaneers were the ones who moved their families first into the <sighs> upper crust, creating millions and billions of dollars in wealth. But even that was not enough to secure their place in the lusted after society salons. Honestly, at this point, who cares? These people are dumb. Take your money, just have a fun time, go find a nice person. As much as for the women as it was more about like social prestige for the men there was still some business especially Mm -hmm. in american society not so much in european society because there was like some trade but it was really difficult right i'm just saying like so far the person who seems the least beneficial here is the wives who are stuck with these guys yeah yeah they they had it they had it rough um but yeah, so like there was some still business trade in America if they had been able to get into society, into society, marry their daughters into the old wealth, they would have had that business. And we'll see some of that it's appear just, here in a bit, but it's just also dumb and made up. Meanwhile, it was the mothers who would secure their daughters and thereby their families places in aristocracy. When the Grand Dames of New York, headed by Mrs. Caroline Astor, refused entry into their salons and dinners, it was the Buccaneers' mothers who took it into their own hands and cast their nets wider, looking overseas for matches for their families. It's hard to track down exactly who set the trend, but I have theories. Of course you do. Two heiresses stand out, Consuelo Vanderbilt and Jenny Jerome, both intrinsically linked to the Churchills. Jenny Jerome's story is a little happier and is possibly the first of its time, and she invariably sets the trend of buccaneering, but she isn't why it became so notorious. Leonard Jerome, her father, as I said a couple minutes ago, was a Brooklyn financier who was born in Pompey, New York. Yes, my hometown. Shout out to Pompey. Leonard's three daughters all made advantageous matches after traveling to Paris in 1867. 
Jenny was first introduced into European society, like the Bridgerton Balls. Okay, so she and had fun. Yeah, she had fun. She had a good time. Mm-hmm. She was in Paris. It was the mm-hmm. Gilded Age. It was great. It's the City of Light, when the City of Light first became a thing. And in 1873, 1873, she met and fell in love with Lord Randolph Churchill, son of the Duke of Marlborough. Jenny was a writer, an activist, and a society matron. But ultimately, what she is most arguably known for is being the mother of Winston Churchill. I still don't know if it was a good trade. <laughs> she at least was in love. Oh, okay. Well, all right. I'll give her one. And she got to go that. to Paris. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, Jenny was one of the first dollar princesses, one of the first names to recognize the leap across the pond in exchange and exchange her dowry for a society marriage. But as important and amazing as Jenny's life and lineage was, I think that there's someone else who made the dollar princesses as notorious as they are. Alva Vanderbilt. Mm. And not because of who she linked her daughter Consuelo to. Consuelo was not a queen or a princess. She even divorced her first husband, a duke. Good. Instead, it is the way that Alva manipulates New York society that would forever change our social landscape. Honestly, good, because these people suck. I hope she made it worse for them. Oh, no, you're giving me a bad look. Did she make it worse for everybody? This is the housewife's portion. Oh, ooh, ooh, okay, okay. <laughs> Get your little teacup ready. Okay, I'm good. I'm putting aside all my compassion for these people. I'm just going to enjoy the, the trash. And this is like a drama. Keep okay. this in mind. This is like housewife's drama. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wife of William Vanderbilt and granddaughter-in-law to patriarch Cornelius Commodore Vanderbilt. Yes, of Vanderbilt University. Alva was a calculating woman. At this time, the 1870s, New York society was ruled by Caroline Astor. Yes, the one who had become the Waldorf Astor family and the so-called 400. These 400 individuals were so named because 400 people could fit in the ballroom at the Astor's mansion. And this was the absolute height of society. If you were part of the 400, you were in. And more importantly, they were all old money. Caroline Astor, one of the wealthiest women in the country, descended, as we know, from generations of trade and industry. She was the one everyone sought to appease. She wasn't descended from nobility herself, but her family's wealth and social status ensured that if you were one of the 400, you had made it. Mrs. Astor, though, despised the nouveau riche, and she made this clear by repeatedly snubbing Alva, denying the Vanderbilts and their friends access to the upper crust. In repeated efforts to join those elusive ranks, Alva did everything she could. In 1879, using her grandfather-in-law's inheritance, she and her husband purchased a glorious house on Fifth Avenue and embarked on a four-year renovation project, firmly enmeshing herself into the physical presence of those she Mm. wanted to be a part of. Then, in 1883, Alva decided to throw a masquerade ball as a housewarming, and not just any ball. This ball was so groundbreaking, so extravagant, so opulent, that it was talked about for years to come. Alva spent today's equivalent of nearly $6 million on one party? On one night. Wow. And over 1,200 people were invited. Mm. Was well, it the 400? I should say 1,200 invitations went out. On the surface, Alva threw this party as a housewarming. I'm not ignoring your question. Okay. Just as a housewarming for her best friend and the godmother of her daughter, Consuelo Iznaga. That's a hard name to say. I apologize. Um, soon to become Consuelo Mandeville, Duchess of Manchester. Consuelo herself was a buccaneer, though she came from generational wealth and was descended from the Spanish aristocracy through Cuban lineage. But anyways, Alva threw a party. And didn't invite Mrs. Astor. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> now, technically, she did have an excuse for the snub. She had never been invited to Astor's party before. So as a woman of, quote, lesser social standing, she was oh. not allowed to invite the Astors to her own party. Mm. That is true petty girl right That's there. hilarious. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Mm-hmm. Eventually, or so it goes, Mrs. Astor's daughter, desperate to go to the party of the century, had her mother pay Alva an invitation to visit. Following her hilariously wicked trick, Alva now had no excuse to not send the invite, mm. and she had successfully maneuvered the grand dame of New York society into acknowledging her, Alva Vanderbilt. Nice. Okay. Good for right? her. Yeah. Anyways, Caroline and her daughter did eventually go to Alva's party, though the snub was made quite clear. Reportedly after the party, Mrs. Astor was quoted as saying, We have no right to exclude those whom the growth of this great country has brought forward, provided they are not vulgar in speech and appearance. The time has come for the Vanderbilts. Oh, she sucks. (laughs) It was time indeed. Alva's family was now thoroughly of the ton. Thanks to the party, William was admitted membership into New York's most exclusive gentlemen's clubs, and that winter the Vanderbilts were invited to Mrs. Astor's traditional holiday Mm. ball. Through her machinations, Alva had succeeded where no other new money could. She had inserted herself into the 400. The nouveau riche had infiltrated the ranks of the upper echelons, and the Gilded Age kicked into gear. I want to say good for her, but I think this is all really stupid. But honestly, you know, good for her. I I feel like Andy Cohen needs to get in here. Just wait. Oh, God. Alva wasted no time moving her family into an even more fortuitous position. Her only daughter, Consuelo, not Consuelo Niznaga, that was the godmother, this is her daughter. Consuelo, the daughter, was only six years old at the infamous party. But Alva took it upon herself to oversee Consuelo's education afterwards to ensure that she had no faults as a lady and was prepared for wherever society took her. By eight, she could read and write in German and English, and she was fluent in French. And by 16, Consuelo was the perfect doll for her mother to play with. She wore only clothes her mother approved of, interacted with only the people her mother introduced her to, even was told what to think by her mother. Mm. It was very toxic, and it's about to get more toxic. Alva had decided long ago that her daughter would make the most brilliant marriage possible, regardless of how Consuelo felt about it. It was all for the edification of the Vanderbilts, and more importantly, of Alva, who cared what Consuelo had to say. When her daughter finally came of age, Alva quickly followed her dear friend, the Duchess of Manchester's example, and arranged a match between Consuelo Vanderbilt and Charles Spencer Churchill, ninth Duke of Marlborough. This match really goes to show how much it was the mothers making these moves and not the daughters calling the shots. It may have appeared that way to European aristocracy, witnessing really only the daughters moving around ballrooms and flirting with the European men, but they never saw what went on behind the scenes. They never saw the mothers pulling their daughters' strings. By 1895, Alva's marriage to William Vanderbilt was on the rocks. Their joint ambition to conquer society as a young couple had been achieved, and now they had more wealth than they knew what to do with. William began to resent Alva and her machinations, calling her a virago and openly, openly lusting after other women, notably Consuelo Yuznaga, Alva's best friend. Ugh. Alva had on, held on to her name and her marriage and her wealth until her knuckles were white, which only served to push William and her daughter further away. Then came the summer of 1893. Bored with his wealth. You know that problem, Jen. It's oh, yeah. so bored. It happens all the time. So bored. Um, and desperate for something to shake up their lives, William bought a new yacht. And like 
this is a 300 foot yacht mm-hmm. it's not like a sailing yeah, boat it's a yacht it's like a jeff bezos yacht yeah and hatched a plan to sail it and his family around the world on this journey william and alva were invited to stay at the government house in calcutta by the viceroy of india and the wealth displayed there sent alva into a tizzy made even higher when the viceroyne told alva that she had a nephew who was ready for marriage alva heard the title heard the word duke and that was all she wrote she began planning consuelo's marriage without telling the fiance or her daughter what a shock by 1894 alva and william had separated alva is that that normal i didn't think divorces usually it's not no this was like they must have really hated each other at that point yeah like, they were still married. They weren't divorced. Oh, but they just didn't want to live together, have anything yeah, to do with each other. Yeah. Okay. Alva actually moved into a fabulous apartment in Paris with her daughter and debuted Consuelo into society without William, but William still paid for everything. Mm. Honestly, that sounds like the way to do it. I mean, hey. Aside from still... all the awful stuff of throwing your daughter at this guy, but... It gets worse. Oh, she okay. continued her machinations for making her daughter the belle of the ball throughout Paris and London. Here, in 1895, Alva would feed the gossip sheets, finally divorcing her husband, alleging he was long unfaithful and breaking the greatest social taboo of the circle she had so long to climb and then i got confused about so is quinsalo engaged when she's like planning to another person or this is a a different guy this is a so she is engaged she's not officially engaged oh so it's alva is planning the engagement to charles the viceroy's nephew oh oh, okay quinsalo has no idea though okay no i think i got confused because you said like (laughs) there's engagement sooner and then suddenly like she meets this guy in india Alva meets the guy. Yeah, no, I know that, but I was like, she doesn't. I thought she had already been engaged, and then she meets this other person. Not that Alva knows about. Divorce did not happen to the ladies of the peerage. Alva mm-hmm. was challenging the unwritten rules and faced expulsion from society. She and Consuelo were ostracized. Oh. Was the was William? No. Oh, okay. Well, I guess because she's the one who asked for he's it. He's a man. He's of course, he's too. not ostracized. Yeah. But Alva had a plan. She had that fortuitous marriage up her sleeve, and that would put herself and her daughter back in society's good graces. She had been planning this match since that trip to India in 1893, and she was not like going to let anything stop her, not even her daughter's own secret engagement to another man. So she threw another ball. And then she locked her daughter in their marble mansion on Fifth Avenue for five months. Oh, was it like... To keep her where she could see her. Keep her where she could see her and keep her from talking to her secret man. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Consuelo had no, like, interaction with the outside world for five months. Mm-hmm. The footman didn't even acknowledge her. Like, oh. she couldn't write anything. She so could So it was kind of like solitary confinement. It was. Exactly what okay. it was. Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah. And eventually, Consuelo capitula- capitulated to the marriage, obviously. What she went through was honestly nothing short of psychological torture. And so... Barely 18, Consuelo married Charles, the ninth Duke of Marlborough. Her dowry, 2.5 million in share stock in that year's money, Mm -hmm. with an annual income of $100,000 given to the Duke. Wait, wait, wait. So this guy got money just to marry her? Like, it's like a salary? Yeah. It's settled yearly upon them. My God. Today, that's $3.6 million a year. Wow. Just an annual income from marriage. And is it still William who's paying this? It's, yeah, it's It's, like the estate, basically. Mm -hmm. God. Yeah, I would marry anybody, too, for that much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Elva and Consuelo give us good insight into why these mothers were maneuvering their daughters into marriages. It didn't matter that they weren't born into the upper crust. They would insert themselves with the grace of their money and sheer grit. And like you said, this is all so she could get back with her friends. Yeah. Basically. So she could get back into those upper circles. So she could be in society pages. So she could be the grand dame. So mm-hmm. she could be the one throwing the parties. Mm-hmm. It was all artificial. Yeah. There was no true, like... 
need for it. Yeah, exactly. Like, she had enough money. She could have just been, like, a cool essential. She could have like, retired yeah. to a house in the country and just mm-hmm. lived her happy old lazy life. But Honestly, no. not even the country. She could have, like, redone what she did before and just threw a bigger party. Yeah, but no. Because, I mean, for the price of this, for getting her daughter into marriage, she could have had, like, a party every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She could have themes. I know. Also, I have to show you some of the costumes for that first masquerade bar cause, party because there was, like, a cat costume. Did she even like her daughter? Or was she, like, more of a means to an end? She was a means. She was a pawn. Mm. That's all that mattered. And that was her only daughter. Yeah. Her only child. Yeah. Okay. So she was especially desperate she to had, make it work. That was her only daughter. She had two sons. And oh, the son stayed okay. with William and inherited the, like, oh, estate, okay, yeah. basically. Because like he, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have a dumb question. I don't know if this makes sense. When there's all these issues of the upper crust not accepting the, you know, the new rich, couldn't the new rich just be like, well, if you don't like me, you don't get my oil or like you don't get my trains, you don't get my, my yeah, new stuff? Yeah, but then they didn't get the money from the old rich. Well, aren't they getting money though from the, the middle and lower classes? Like, do they need the rich? They were getting labor from the middle and lower classes. Okay, but they weren't paying for these services. Right. Yeah, we're Trade not at that point. was still established through okay. like these mm-hmm. original industries. So there wasn't like a give and take they could try. Right. No. Okay, no. I'm just wondering. No, not really. No. Mm-hmm. Especially in the old like the fur and the trading and the banking, mm-hmm. that was all knickerbocker. That was yeah. All that old was money. definitely nothing that lower could Correct. do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There is, however, one final piece of the puzzle we have to talk about. Why in the world were European men so interested in snagging heiresses as their wives? They came from long-standing houses, some going back for longer than England was a country. Mm-hmm. Why did they need young upstart beauties in their beds? Mm-hmm. To which question, to which I will ask another question, Jen, what do you know of the Long Depression? Not the American Great Depression. The lo- I actually have never heard of the Long Depression. If you're not talking about some kind of medical issue. No. This is actually an 18 18- in the 1870s, there mm-hmm. was a long depression that was like a global depression oh, in the okay. economy. Yeah. So the 1870s were a hard time to be a farmer mm-hmm. in everywhere it appeared except America because the soil wasn't nearly as depleted as it was in places like England, England and Ireland. After mm-hmm. all, this was right after the Great Famine in Ireland. Appalling harvests, a global drought, and loss of agricultural workforce thanks to the Second Industrial Revolution led to a plummeting stock market. Then, in 1873, a stock market crashed in Europe, leading to rapid depreciation in railroad stock in London. Again, we're back to economics. England relied heavily on the railroad, and when stock crashed, trade shifted from from England to places like America and South Africa. And the wealth holders in Europe, and especially England, began to lose even more money atop the loss of agricultural revenue and labor. England was built on the back of feudalism, which you'll remember from my medieval discussion this summer. And though by the 19th century, a constitutional monarchy was firmly in place with Queen Victoria at the ironclad helm, the squirearchy was still the main system upon which the nobility functioned. I know, it's a fun word. This squirearchy relied heavily on its agricultural workforce. Land rents were exchanged in money from crops, and that money helped to pay for the grand estates owned by the nobility. Remember, much of the nobility at this point had at this point in time had two if not three or more estates and houses they had the house in town if we stick solely with the uk where aristocrats would be in london when parliament was in session and society convened around balls and courtyards and parks then the nobility would retire to their country seats when parliament wasn't in session running their estates and planning and having babies sometimes they would even have secondary country estates if their land wasn't too divided amongst um other members of the family where they would sometimes also retire on holiday to places like Bath, Scotland, the continent. In short, there was a lot of money being spent, but not so much coming in, Mm -hmm. right? To quote the husband hunters, 
As for the aristocrats to whom this land belonged, many simply watched helplessly as their estates became burdened with debt and their houses began to crumble around them. The idea of earning a living was not something they could comprehend. They were not educated to work. To work, They had no family business to go into. In short, they could not change their ways. So I know the gentleman didn't really work. I know that's always been a thing. But then who... Like, where... Did Where'd everybody not, go? No, I mean, like, did, did they not manage their estates, though? Was it just... So they literally just sat there and stayed. Still. Yeah. Like, they just ha- were useless? A lot of the times, did they, they like, had managers for their own estates, especially okay. upper 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 class. I just think it'd be so easy to steal from them. Exactly. And that's <laughs> that was another thing. So especially, like, this happened in the 1600s yeah. also, and they did have, like, a lot of their wealth was stolen from them. Good, honestly. But yeah, so they were racking up, like, unpaid bills. Mm-hmm. Their estates were leaking funds and workers... Eventually, pieces of the estate, land, livestock, fields, buildings, then paintings, furniture, and relics, and artifacts, and jewels were all sold off in piecemeal. Mm. At, and many houses did eventually go extinct during this period, sold instead to the new money crowd, or dissolved completely. All of these losses, quote, were looked on as necessities. Old masters were expendable. For some of these men, an American wife with her dowry of dollars was a lifeline. And so just over 100 years after the American Revolution had supposedly freed us from the idea of hereditary aristocrats and the oversight of England and Europe, our daughters were sent back in droves. In the period between 1870 and 1914, 454 American girls married titled Europeans, oh. sending dollars to the fa- to the failing crowns and exchanging dowries for titles and tiaras. Jen, would you do it? No. What's in it for me? Exactly. Like, I, the only happy story you told me about was the Churchill yeah. mother. And, like, otherwise, like, cool, I'm helping my dad and my mom. And, like, I have to go marry this gross inbred guy who doesn't even really want me. He just wants to keep his house and not work. Now to the stories of, like, all those girls, like, yeah. running away from marriage. Oh, my God. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's it's a and and like you're insulted for it, which yeah. is the other crazy thing. And exactly. it's like I am helping you. It's like this is my money. Yeah. Take it. I could be living in New York City right now and instead I'm in this crumbling rotting <laughs> castle. In New York. No. No, this sucks. Like <laughs> Did anybody ever run away? Did they fight? Because I know you said 454 American girls mm-hmm. ended up. Were there more that could have, but then they like lost at sea? Wink, wink. They just <laughs> ran away. Presumably, yes. Off I on mean, a horse. even Consuela Vanderbilt eventually she did divorce her okay. first husband and I can't she married Im- sec- again. Yeah, I, was, I can't imagine many of these were very happy. And Princess Diana's own is the she's the one who married yeah. a really ugly guy. Yeah. Um, her great grandmother was an American dollar princess, okay. and she was married twice mm-hmm. to the first time to the Earl of or the Baron of Fermoy from Fermoy Fermoy stupid. Baron Maurice Fermoy, sorry. And then she married another, like, lesser noble guy and was in love. And honestly, this is so depressing. And now I know why the romance novels are so much better. Yes. Like, that is what I would rather read. Speaking of romance novels, we always have to draw this back to romance books at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Gilded Age romance novels are nowhere near as popular as Regency or even now the Victorian setting. They should be because, honestly, this would be a very dramatic setting for, like, a a eventual love match or, like, enemies to lovers, arranged marriage. Like, there's a lot you could do with this. I'm kind of annoyed I've only ever seen a couple. Yeah. Um, we have to remember timing and locations for these eras, right? Mm-hmm. So the British Regency took place more largely between 1795 and 1837. So that's its own thing. Yeah. This was followed in the UK by the Victorian period during the reign of Queen Victoria from June 1837 to January 1901. Meanwhile, over in the United States, the Civil War lasted from 1861 to 1865, with the Reconstruction era lasting from then through 1901. Within that Reconstruction era is when we get the Gilded Age, which ended approximately around the first years of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. 
The term Gilded Age was created by author Mark Twain in his 1873 novel with the same title, penned in collaboration with author Charles Dudley Warner. The novel was written also to provoke fun and criticize the magnates of the time, just like Wharton's novel did with the husband hunters. To further muddy the waters, this is also when cowboy novels are predominantly set. Mm. Go listen to our old cowboy episode, linked free in the show notes, it's numbers 19 and 20, to listen to everything about cowboys. This was part of my Lost Genre series before it was named as such, and I think we should redo it at some point. (laughs) Anyways. I don't need to have that fight with you again. (laughs) Country stars do not count. We're talking purely historical. I'm just saying. Purely historical. Just saying. For historical cowboy romances, the periods between the Civil War and the Great Depression were prime time for westward expansion. I said before, too, how the Gilded Age was the time of industries like ranching, meat production, Mm -hmm. and trade, and, of course, railroads. So, naturally, and if you've watched 1893, 1893, the show, you get this, cowboy books set during this period are technically during the Gilded Age. They aren't just, they just aren't in New York, and they generally have leather instead of silk. So, like, some cowgirl could get sent off to marry, to be a dollar yeah. princess instead well, so of a like cowgirl. Well, so, like, the one that I made you read, mm. the Elizabeth Lowell yeah. one, only his. Yeah. It's technically a Gilded Age yeah. husband hunter. Because she's, well, it kind of flip-flops it. Because she's a British heiress mm-hmm. who comes and marries um, yeah. a cowboy. Right. Yeah, so. Yeah, there's a lot you could do here. I don't know why we It's just, it's a so cowboy that. because mm-hmm. it's about a cowboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think we definitely have to redo the cowboy yeah. episode. But I digress. Romance novels that span these years are often lumped into the Victorian era or into cowboys because, yes, technically, this is the same time frame. And for some reason, romance novels, even when written by Americans, continuously are set in England and the larger British Isles during this era. But if we pay attention to themes, years, and location, we can narrow down a select collection of Gilded Age novels to read and love and devour. And I have done that for you. Oh, I have good. a list. I think so. So. I don't have to do that. There are two important things to pay attention to here. Do the novels take place at the end of the 19th century? And where is the location? Is it Europe, England, America, that sort of thing? If you have a novel that checks the timeline box and is set predominantly in America or features an American main character, congrats, you have a Gilded Age novel. Yay! Yay! Let's make it easier for you. Here are my personal recommendations. Good. The Lux series by Anna Godberson mm. is a YA romance series that was thoroughly intended for the crowd of us readers who loved Gossip Girl but wanted it historical. <laughs> I do love that. I love this book series so much. It's about sisters in Manhattan at the turn of the century, and I remember being shooketh by the ending of book one. Book four, Splendor, especially fits with our discussion today as it oh. is about an heiress who goes to England. That's true. Look at that. Yeah. Now, if you want to jump into adultier romances with more steam, you're going to want to start with a series we mentioned multiple times, but both of us have yet to pick up. Look, I was supposed to read it for book club. It's not my fault of the library yeah. was got rid of it. It's The Gilded Age Heiresses by Harper St. George. This series has everything we've talked about. Railroad tycoons, American millionaires, which is a fun word to say, dukes, earls, fake engagements, and scandals. Oh, my. After I get through my current TBR, which is tuned to a very special project coming up, I thoroughly plan on picking these books over the, up over the Christmas holiday because there's just something about like, the Gilded Age and Christmas that goes hand in hand. I don't know why. It just does. Joanna Shoup is also like a queen of Gilded Age, and mm-hmm. I had no idea until yeah. I started digging. Um, she has a couple different series. The 400, which the title speaks for itself after mm-hmm. our discussion, flips the husband hunter's theme on its head, and it brings the heiress, heiress, English aristocracy, especially the ladies, here mm-hmm. to New York to hook up with financiers and hotel moguls. That's not something we got to talk about in this episode, but I think some of the same ideas as the American dollar princesses apply to those themes as well. Mm-hmm. Shoop also read the Uptown Girls series, which, if you liked Alva Vanderbilt, 
before she became a super manipulative and god's awful rich woman, then I think you would like this one. It's classic Gilded Age industrialism with the heroes and heroines pulling themselves up and out of their dire situations. It's actually a really good foil to Sarah McLean's Barnacle Bastard series, which is set in Victorian England and one of Jen's favorites. Yes. And finally, Shoop also has the Fifth Avenue avenue rebels series which actually features knickerbockers do they actually say that word in there yes oh my god that's like just book word. one is in the blurb oh knickerbocker <laughs> i just don't know how you can take yourself seriously i just that just goes to show they had more money than sense oh, <laughs> <laughs> book one the heiress hunt and book four the duke gets even particularly fit the theme and of course you should read edith wharton's book the buccaneers but if you don't feel like reading it it is getting adapted by apple tv oh good to know so cool. yeah and it looks amazing cool yeah. i don't have apple tv neither do i i'll never know <laughs> i need to find uh, some way to buy it because mm -hmm. i really want to watch it and it looks really good well thank you so much for the jackie i of learned course. a lot i might have to pick up this book at some point in my life i definitely need to go find some more gilded age so yeah. thank you for that i maybe that's how i'll get out of my book slump and if you guys think we're missing any, if you want us to find some more, definitely, you know, mm -hmm. give us a uh, shout out. Email us at RagingRomantics at Nopal.org. And Jen, what do we always say? Rage on! Bye, guys. Unpaid bills were mountains. I copied. Nimmer, 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 nimmer. It's beautiful. Thanks. I'm going to say that again because I can hear myself say um mm -hmm. 50,000 times. Do you want me to start like <clears throat> no? Or is that too annoying? No, that's okay. <laughs> I don't think you'll like it. <laughs> I'll just yell at you. No. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Ah! <laughs> See? Scare me. You said to do it if you said um. I thought it was going to be like a joke on no. the podcast. <laughs>